This morning we're going to be examining a very relevant topic, though up until recently many people in our country would have never thought that this would touch our country, um, that this would be a relevant topic to us. More and more of the signs are emerging that this topic must be preached in churches all across our country as well. And we must take seriously this uncomfortable topic this morning of persecution. When we think about the topic of persecution, we so often think about stories that took place in the early church in the first 300 or 400 years after Christ. Stories like Probius, our brother in Christ who lived in the Roman Empire around 250 AD, who was arrested for being a Christian because he would not sacrifice to the emperor or to the false gods of paganism. And after being arrested, he was whipped until he was exhausted and collapsed. And then he was commanded again to make a sacrifice to those pagan deities. But this is what he said. I come better prepared than before, for I have suffered much, but it has only strengthened me in my resolution. Employ your whole power upon me, and you shall find that neither you, nor the emperor, nor the gods that you serve, nor even the devil himself, who is your father, shall ever compel me to worship idols, whereupon he was beheaded. There are many stories like that that exist that we can read about in the classic book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, or the more modern version, Jesus Freaks, which I highly recommend those books. They have a way of purifying us and refocusing us. They are wonderful books, but hard books. But persecution does not just exist in the history books or in the stories of the Bible, some of which we're going to look at today. It exists today, and it could very well be coming to our country. And pastorally, as I just prayed a little bit ago, one of the hardest things for me is when I hear people talk about their struggles and their faith when they go through hardship. And I have seen person after person turn and temporarily, or hopefully temporarily, some that I know that are still walking away from God, because they could not ever imagine a God would allow whatever it is that he allowed into their life that caused them so much pain. And I do not want to see that ever again. Now, I know I will, but I don't want to see it in my own hearts, and I don't want to see it in any of yours. And I know that we will face trials in our lives. Maybe this kind of trial, maybe not. But it seems like this could be coming our way. And I want us to be prepared. I want our faith to grow stronger, not weaker, if we ever do have to go down that path. Today, persecution exists, and we know this, all around the world. But it also is something that we don't tend to talk about or pray for enough. And at the extent of it, I don't think that many in our country are really aware. I've mentioned this before, but according to multiple organizations, the Voice of the Martyrs, one of my favorites, Open Doors USA, Focus on the Family, the ACLJ, and many more, there is more persecution taking place around the world today than at all other times in history combined. Now that's astounding. Not just at all other times in history, but all other times in history combined. C.S. Lewis said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death for you. And that is profound. 
as he often is. He's absolutely right. Persecution can be defined as an aggressive or injurious behavior carried out in a hostile spirit, normally by one group against another. It is a form of terror carried out in a spirit of animosity and often hatred. The Hebrew and Greek words in the Bible that are used for persecution have the idea of pursuing and pressing upon someone. And it is often used of oppressing someone, harassing them, punishing them, and even up to the point of death. It is important to define it and to get a biblical picture of it because there are many forms of it, which the Bible describes all as persecution, even though they differ in severity. Sometimes people do not label them all as persecution, though they should. And we must have a biblical and also gospel perspective of this this morning. So we are prepared to deal with it in a biblical and gospel manner. Throughout Bible, throughout biblical history, and the rest of history after, most persecution has been carried out in the name of religion. Though other forms exist, such as ethnic persecution, class persecution, and political persecution, such as seen in Egypt enslaving Israel, and also in the book of Esther. And throughout history, most persecution has been carried out by nations, though it has often been carried out in proxy by opposing religious groups or individuals. The group Open Doors reported that just since the beginning of this year, there have been over 5,000 Christians killed for their faith, um, over 4,488 churches attacked, over 4,277 Christians detained, arrested, and imprisoned without trial. And those are just the known cases. And they will say that they believe that this is up to 10 times more than what we know. According to the State Department, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments, from their neighbors, just by being a Christian. And the numbers are on the rise. Today, over 340 million Christians face persecution in one way or another. And that means that one in eight Christians worldwide is facing this right now. The Bible reveals that persecution of believers who follow the one true God and his word has taken place in many forms, mentally, socially, physically, spiritually. It can include things like insults and mockery and slander, things like social, being a social outcast, removal from groups, or job loss. Things like being targeted for higher taxes for some groups of people, or the inability to receive needed aid or do normal activities such as travel like other people. It can include taking away their God-given right to speak freely, preach freely, or assemble as a church freely. And it can include, of course, imprisonment, abuse, and even death, which is what we tend to focus on. And the Bible reveals that persecution in many forms has been going on since the fall when sin entered the world. It gives many examples, and it is important to get a sense of the sheer number of examples to see how significant this really is. In the Old Testament, we see the seeds of physical persecution begin in Genesis 4, which we've already looked at, when Cain killed his brother Abel. Because his brother followed God and his brother's actions and heart were in the right place, and so Cain hated him for it. In Genesis 19, Lot was pictured as a righteous man. 
who lived a life that was different from the culture around him. And he was persecuted by the people of the city, threatening him and the two angels who came to warn him that God was going to destroy the city. In Genesis 39, Joseph was persecuted by Potiphar's wife, harassing him and pursuing him, bringing the full weight then of the government upon him when she did not get what she wanted, using his ethnicity and socioeconomic status as a slave against him to carry out her evil wishes. It was the life of Joseph that God used to bring his people down to Egypt to safety during the famine. But eventually the Pharaoh, as we all know, turned on the people of Israel and persecuted them as a whole nation, causing God to tell Moses, I have heard of your groanings, the groanings of the people of Israel who the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenants. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, Elijah was persecuted by Queen Jezebel because of his faithful stand against the false religion of the prophets of Baal that she stood for and wanted to promote, that she was financially supporting even. And the king and the queen harassed Elijah, they slandered him, and then they eventually tried to kill him. David was persecuted by Saul and his own people and also by foreign countries. He was slandered and mocked. He was threatened, and people attempted to kill him. And this is a part of what we read over and over in the Psalms, why he cries out to God, because he feared for his life, but also because he had a pastoral or shepherd's kind of heart, looking at his nation and wanting them to follow God and knowing that they weren't. And so he cries out, to God over and over again. Psalm 69, 9 through 18 says, for zeal, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gates, and the drunkards make songs about me. Can you imagine drunk people mocking you and making up little ditties about you and your faith? That's what was happening to him in the city. And then he goes on, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, and an acceptable time, O God, In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He trusted in God, and he trusted in God's timing that this wasn't just a magic thing, that if I pray, it should just go away, or else it proves that prayer doesn't work. He knew prayer didn't operate like that. He knew prayer was a relationship with God, and he was willing to trust God and trust God's timing even through this hardship. At an acceptable time, he says, let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep pits. Let not the flood sweep over me. O Lord, answer me, for your steadfast love is good. The prophet Jeremiah also understood this. He gave God's message of condemnation to the people of Judah, telling them that there was a lot of hardship that was coming, and of course they didn't want to hear that. None of us ever do. And in chapters 36 through 38, He tells us how hated he was by the people for that. They burned his scroll, they slandered him, they beat him, they imprisoned him, and attempted to kill him, 
before abandoning him in a muddy cistern. All because he followed God and loved God and loved them enough to tell them what was hard for them to hear, but what was needed. So often we think we'll tell people the gospel until they respond in this way. And then we won't ever do that again because it's too hard, it's, it's too painful. We learned the lesson the hard way, but that is not what we see in the scriptures. They loved the people enough to keep on praying for them, to keep on living in front of them in a way that modeled the gospel to them, and to keep on telling them the words of truth that they needed to hear, even when they were acting as their enemies. And Jesus tells us very clearly, and the Bible does in numerous places, that we really don't understand love unless we know how to love our enemies. In the New Testament, the Jewish leaders constantly followed Jesus and his disciples, harassing them at every single turn, trying to get them to trip up. They slandered Jesus, even twisting all of the good that he did, and then labeling it as the work of Satan. We all know how disappointing it can be to do good work for someone, and then they don't notice, they don't recognize it, they don't appreciate it, but can you step into their shoes for a moment, they twisted it around and turned it around and said, no, the good you were doing for us was actually evil. And they mocked him all the way up to the point that they arrested him, spit upon him, beat him, and then turned him over to the Romans because they could not carry out their wishes and crucified him. In John 9, the Jewish leaders, because of their hatred for Jesus, began to persecute anyone who followed Jesus. And this one shocks me, even pouring out their hatred on a blind man. Verses, John 9, verses 20 through 22. His parents answered, we do not know, or we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know who has opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And verse 34 tells us that this is what they did to this man. They cast him out, ostracizing him, which meant that he was kicked out from his community. And in many ways, things that he needed from life, it made it very hard for him. He was just blind. He didn't do anything other than get healed. And they hated him so much that they poured this out on him. And there are many times that we scratch our heads and we think, what did I do to this other person? But that is the nature of sin. That is the nature of the world. And their hatred is first for God. Their hatred is for his word, not first for you or for me. In Acts 4, the Jewish leaders carried out their hatred for Christians and their desire to end Christianity by arresting two of their leaders, Peter and John. Very famous story. They attempted to silence them through intimidation and fear. And then, of course, we have those famous statements, those famous words where they say that they will serve God and not listen to them. And at that moment, they were able to go. But we see this carried out more and more. Later in Acts 6 and 7, when Jews could not stand to hear what Stephen said, we all know they stoned him and killed him. In fact, history and tradition tells us all the apostles were persecuted and all of them except for John were killed as martyrs for the faith. 
The Bible tells us even though John was not killed, he was still persecuted, being arrested and banished to the island of Patmos as a prison, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation, which is meant to be such hope for us if we go through persecution as it was for the original readers. Acts 12, 2 tells us that James was killed by the sword of Herod. And of course, the the Bible informs us about the multiple arrests and imprisonments and attempts to kill Paul before Rome finally did execute him. 2 Corinthians 11.25, saying he was imprisoned many times, he underwent countless beatings, including 39 lashes, which would kill many people. He was beaten with rods, and he was even stoned and left for dead. History and tradition, with varying degrees of certainty, record the stories of the rest of the apostles, all killed for their faith, some in horrible and gruesome ways. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia as he was spreading the gospel and he was killed by the sword. Peter was crucified, tradition tells us, upside down. His brother Andrew was lashed and then crucified. Bartholomew was martyred by lashes as well. Thomas was stabbed with spears until he died. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And James, the brother of Jesus, was pushed off the southeast pinnacle of the temple. Don't ever let somebody tell you that being a Christian is an easy thing or it's just a crutch for the weak. The Bible not only gives us examples of persecution that took place, but it also tells us the reason why. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, the ultimate sources of persecution we face in this world, it is caused by Satan and demonic activity. Because Satan hates God, he naturally hates what God loves, and he wants to destroy it in order to hurt God. Anything that is good or true or beautiful, anything that glorifies God, Satan wants to destroy it. Especially God's gospel plan to redeem people from sin and to himself. People who will love him and glorify him in his kingdom forever. And he can't stand it since he wants all the glory that belongs to God alone, but he can't ever have have it. He doesn't want God to have it either. He doesn't want us to share in that. The secondary cause of persecution is people who hate God and his word and anyone who follows him. People who have Satan as their father, as John 8, 42 through 44 tells us. Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he is the father of lies. There are just two options in this life we see from this passage. All people either have God as their father and are forgiven of their sins because of Jesus and Jesus alone, or they have Satan as their father, whether they know it or not, and they follow his ways. And all people will ultimately follow the path of their father. 
In John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus put it this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so this helps us to look around and to make sense out of what we see going on in the world to understand why people can become so evil and so cruel, why people can prefer to have ugliness instead of beauty, why persecution takes place, because in many ways they are like marionettes on a string, following their puppet master. This also keeps us from being surprised when we see persecution in the world or when we may face it ourselves. We should expect that the world will find us and our viewpoints find the gospel that we cherish to be odd at best or to hate it and to reject us, to make fun of us, to mock us, to ridicule us. If you have not ever had that happen, it may happen in your life. Even to hate us, to try to silence us, or the modern lingo today of cancel culture and to get rid of us. Because as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.16, but be thanks be to God who is in Christ Jesus and who leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is why they hate us, because we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and of God. And he goes on, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the fragrance of death to death, and to the other, the fragrance of life. Because of our union with Christ, he goes with us everywhere that we go, spreading what they hate. And they will always try to destroy it, just like their father. But where Satan's purpose is to destroy, and his people, we see that God will never let this happen. Not in an eternal sense. As we read earlier, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. But Satan will not win. God's purpose is very different. His purpose is to use this in our lives and to cause us to grow in him. It is a hard gift, but it is a good gift. His purpose is to show us how bad sin really is, how evil evil really is, how ugly it is, how it will never satisfy us, even when it is put in the form of a temptation that is shiny and that attracts our attention. One of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Brooks, says that Satan loves to show us the bait, but hide the hook. But that hook is always there. And God wants to show us this. To show us the true face of evil and sin. And so the more that we see things like persecution, the more it should cause us to see how beautiful God is, how different he is. 
The more we see the darkness and the evil around us, the more he should shine against that backdrop. His purpose is to cause us to hate sin, to love and enjoy him, the one that we were created for. And the more that we do that, the more that we will hate sin also in ourselves, not just out there. And the more we will strive to follow him out of gratitude. In other words, he overpowers evil, including persecution, and he uses it as a tool of growth and sanctification. As James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, when the trials are coming into our life. Have you ever looked at this passage and said, How on earth can I count it joy? But he says, for you know, the testing of your faith produces something. It produces something good, and that is what God is about. It's not the trial, it's not the pain, it's not the suffering that we are supposed to thank God for. It's what he is doing through that pain and that suffering. And that is beautiful. And that's why he says, for you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is God's goal for us, to make us more like Christ, to fit us for heaven. He is not saying we should enjoy that pain, but we should enjoy him and what he is doing in us. And the fact of the matter is, Christian or not, we all face pain and suffering. We can't get away from it because we live in a broken and fallen world that we broke. We need to trust God and let him, him be the Lord of everything in our lives. He is omniscient and omnipotent, but he is also omnibenevolent. And he knows which things to allow into our lives and which things to keep out of our lives or protect us from in order to bring us home. And that is key. Have you ever thought about it that way? God knows just which hard things to allow into your life and which things to keep out of your life in order to fit you for heaven and to bring you home. Because so often we just think, God, deliver me from this. Not, God, what are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to grow me? It is okay to pray those kinds of prayers, but we also need to pray these kinds of prayers. And that is why we could read what we did earlier, because he works through those, those things. And then we can say with confidence that we know that those who love God, for us, all things work together for good, because we know God's ultimate goal. He might have prayed and asked God to reveal his immediate purpose and trials. He might have prayed and asked God why on many occasions. As Paul penned these words, I'm sure he thought many times, God, why are you doing this specifically? It's not wrong to ask God to show us those things. Maybe Paul prayed those prayers more than we know, but we know where his confidence was at, and we know what the main focus was, and that was for God to grow him and to use him no matter what he went through. We need to trust our sovereign king, and know that he did not have to offer mercy or forgiveness or freedom to any one of us. He does not owe any of us his grace or love. And he is not required to overpower evil and use it for good for any of us. We are the ones who rebelled against him, turned our backs on him, chose evil 
over our Creator and our benevolent King. We are the ones who messed up everything and brought about all the evil that exists today. And if you think, well, wait a second, that wasn't me, that was Adam, do you really think that you would have done anything different? We have lived in a world of sin our entire lives. We were born sinners with sin nature. He wasn't initially. God could have just immediately and justly ended the story right there. He is not the author of sin or evil. Humanity is. And we cannot blame him when he allows it to touch our lives Even when we can say, God, you know all things. You could have stopped this from happening. You could have changed things. Instead, just like Job, we are called to praise him and trust him, knowing that he has a good and ultimate purpose, even when we can't see it at the moment, and even when it may reduce us to tears and weeping. Knowing that he could have just left us alone in that pain, since we are the ultimate causes of the brokenness in the world, but instead knowing that we have these promises that we read about and promises like Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And knowing that one day he will end it all, that he will right every wrong, he will wipe away every tear, we know that we can trust the sovereign king who has defeated Satan. Christ won at the cross and the resurrection, and he ascended to his throne in heaven where he is presently ruling and reigning. As R.C. Sproul has said, there is not a single maverick molecule that exists that he is not in control of. And as such, we can trust him in his plan, especially when we know how it is all going to end. But that is not all God wants to teach us on the subject of persecution. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 is the part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes, and it is filled with rich promises that people often memorize. But the only promise in the Beatitudes that is repeated is the blessing that believers receive when we are persecuted. This is not one of the blessings we tend to memorize or focus on or knit or crochet and put onto our walls, but it is a blessing as well. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This does not mean that people go to heaven because they are persecuted. Rather, being persecuted reveals those who have true faith, those who are forgiven, those who belong to Jesus. It shows us two important things, that persecution is to be expected in this world, just as we already read in John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But it also shows us that we will receive rewards in heaven for what we go through here on earth when we suffer for Christ and like Christ. Therefore, in light of this passage, we must never be caught off guard by persecution. It should never shake our faith or cause us to think there is no God or that he does not care. Rather, we should be strengthened when we see the things that he told us would come true in his word. It should cause us to believe in the word even more. And it should cause us to look forward to the justice that is coming. 
It should cause us to remember verses like this, which remind us that God is a God of justice who also hates evil. So when we have that inside of us, it's coming from him. One day he will end all injustice. He will end all persecution. He will end all evil. And he will reward those who suffered in faith for him. He's not asking us to do anything that he did not do. All we have to do is look to the cross. We must be prepared for persecution, whether it is the kind spoken of by the word as being hated or reviled or slandered, or whether it is the kind of Romans 8, 35 through 39, we are being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remembering the promises found in both passages that speak about what the Holy Spirit does through it and the future reward that will be ours. When we have an eternal perspective, it will enable us to know how to pray for ourselves and for others, including those who maybe are persecuting us. How to pray for our enemies, how to cry out in faith and trust for ourselves or for others who are being persecuted, but also how to cry out for those who are causing the pain, that God would change them and bring them to the light. The type of prayers that enable us to do the impossible, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, as Matthew 5.44 says. And when you do that, you're not doing that on your own, but you're doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit, following in the footsteps of your brother Jesus, who from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The Holy Spirit enables us to love our enemies and to want what is best for them, to pray that God would give them what is best for them instead of what they deserve. Because when we know the truth, that it is so much more satisfying for our enemies to become our friends than to remain our enemies. It is so much more satisfying to have our enemies become our brothers and sisters in Christ and to no longer be that hurt-causing person than it is to think that that person is just getting justice, just getting their due reward. Then that can strengthen us to pray even for those who are our enemies. Paul went from standing beside Stephen being stoned to being our brother in Christ. And we wouldn't have a huge chunk of the scriptures if it wasn't for him. And I'm sure every one of us can't wait someday to meet Paul. We will actually be able to do that. What wonderful conversations we will have. He persecuted the church. God can change anyone. So we need to start thinking like Christ. God, give us your heart. Help us to see what this person would look like when they come to know you. Help us to see past the hurt that they are causing us. Help us to have the heart and the mind of Christ. When we have the mind of Christ, persecution can remind us how bad hell is and empower us to trust in Christ through this temporary suffering. And to realize what is coming is eternal. It can empower us to love Christ more, but it can also empower us to love our enemies. It is my prayer today that if we ever face that in this country, 
It will strengthen your love for Jesus and even your love for the enemy. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that none of us are up to this task. We confess our weakness. We confess, Father, that every one of us would love to just run and hide. We confess that it is so easy for us to look at someone who even mocks us or makes fun of us and want to get even with them and make them pay, let alone someone who would do something much worse and kill someone we love or attempt to kill us or if we were actually facing death ourselves. Father, we are so weak and we are not capable on our own. But Lord, cause us to remember that we are never on our own. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.